It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, successful chinchilla farmer and America's recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. So coaches, you have to talk in your job every single day throughout the day and your program depends on it. Your career depends on it. And yet you have never been trained how to do that like many people in the professional world or in media. Uh, and so what we wanted to do today was to bring in somebody that I consider one of the, the national experts or voices on having conversations and communicating. And that is Celeste Headley. Uh, I'm going to link to a lot of stuff in the show notes that you can look uh, into what she does, her website, the, the outstanding TED Talks that she's given on this topic. But we're going to dig into some specifics of what I think is going to matter to you as a coach who wants to communicate better, who has to communicate better, but has to do it with a generation that many of us would agree really has trouble communicating. So Celeste Headley, that is the, the task before us today is in 30 minutes or so, um, try to solve the communication problems between generations for you know, 50, 60,000 college coaches out there listening. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here, really appreciate it. So I'm gonna dive right in. Um, why is it so difficult? Just take recruiting and the, the generation gap, but just for the, take that out of it. For the regular person, why have we become um, so bad at communicating and having just conversations, not only with uh, each other and people that we know, but people that uh, we, we need to sort of bring over to our side, whatever that is. So there's two sides to this. Um, the first one is that, uh, even when human beings are not practiced um, and and um, have not worked on their communication skills, we are still homo sapiens. We are still the most sophisticated communicators and collaborators on the planet. So that's the first thing. All of that um, evolved generational knowledge on how to be a social animal on planet Earth is in you. And it's sometimes it's just a matter of tapping back into that. Um, but the one of the reasons we're not doing that is because, uh, first of all, we think that conversations slow us down. Um, we think that involving other people in our projects makes it less efficient, which is not true, mm -hmm. uh, makes it take longer again untrue um, and makes it, you know, more likely to involve drama. That's a little bit true because we're all emotional creatures. So when you interact with other people, emotions will be involved. Another reason that we do that is because um, we, when we get into a state of anxiety, which most people are in right now, <laughs> I want to be clear about that. The pandemic has been difficult for everybody. We know um, from a number of healthcare organizations that the pandemic caused a 25% increase worldwide in anxiety and depression. So a lot of people right now are in fight or flight mode. Mm. Um, which means that we're not in the best, when we are in fight or flight mode, we do exactly what that sounds like. We either want to flee or we want to fight. <laughs> There's also freeze. You can freeze. And, and in most people that looks like somebody kind of huddling into their den, they just kind of close down in on themselves. Um, so that's another issue right now. And the last thing I will say is that technology as great as it is, um, has a really important impact on our brains. And it's, ones that, it's one that we don't pay enough attention to. We have massive amount of research showing that even the sight 
in your peripheral vision of a smartphone or a, a computer screen distracts your brain, mm-hmm. pulls your focus away from whatever it is you're trying to doing to do. And because conversations are difficult, they require a lot of higher processing from the executive functioning of your brain. Pulling your attention away is going to make it much more difficult for you to listen and respond in a in a in a healthy, thoughtful way. So all of these things are sort of working together right now to make conversations difficult. So you mentioned technology, and I knew this is going to be a place that we would want to explore a little bit. Uh, so I'll jump on that since you brought it up. These coaches that we work with that are around the country who haven't been trained as communicators necessarily and uh, have not had other than coaching with uh, coaching a teenager or the fact that they were a teenager maybe not too long ago um, they're the, the the big hurdle that i hear them talking about is i need to communicate with teenagers who are distracted by technology or who only want to communicate through technology so it's sort of a two-part question setting that up Number one, are we as the adults whining? And these are really actually good communicators and we just don't realize it or or we can't tap into that. And what is the best way to have a conversation given all those distractions? What are the the hacks or the fixes that we need to, um, that we need to kind of try to execute as, as somebody who wants to lead that conversation in in a recruiting scenario? I think I understand your question here. Um, So I think that, you know, so often we go into conversations worried about what it is that we're going to say. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is that what we go in to learn from the other person is actually more important. So we'll go into even things like job interviews, rehearsing what we'll say in our heads, when really what we should be thinking about is what kind of questions are you going to ask? Mm. When you're in these conversations, and especially when you're in a recruiting setting or any, anything yeah. where you need to, to create a bond with that person, they need to feel like they've been heard. I want you to think that through for a moment. In order to create that empathic bond, to create a connection with someone else, they need to feel like they are being heard. Okay, really absorb that. They don't need to necessarily hear all the right things said exactly the way they need to be said. They need to be heard. So when people go into these conversations, yeah, it's important to have your preparation and know, you know, your facts and figures and the information that you need to know or have a hand. But frankly, you can have those in your notes. Um, What's more important is for you to make a connection by asking good questions. And so often, I think, I mean, again, if we're trying to get a decision from somebody, we almost go in sometimes with the idea that we need to make our case. We need right. to um, we need to get our point across, and then they'll see it our way and just agree. I think it's so important that coaches listen to what you just said, that it's about asking questions, which then the secondary part of that is listening and, to your point, making that uh, that person, this recruit, their family, parents, whoever it is you're talking to, or your boss on the campus, uh, making them feel like they have been heard. So what are the practical ways to do that? So if I'm in a, if I'm a coach and I've got my 15th recruit on campus this month and the conversation, I'll ask the questions, but you know what? It's getting a little old for me. Um, this is a repetitive process. Are there cues or signs that we can give the person we're talking to uh, that we are listening that we that, that they have been heard are, are there things that we can demonstrate to them even if we may not be completely present or 
the, the again, this is the, the repeated talk that I've given recruit after recruit after recruit, person after person, but I want them to feel special, unique. Are there cues that we can give them? Or are there things maybe that that person is looking for to feel like and recognize that they've been heard? So here's the difficulty here. Um, mm -hmm. All of us are quite good at um, detecting when someone else is not fully engaged and isn't really listening. We are extremely good at that. Right. Um, and so it is better to be honest with the recruit. Uh, when you are going, if you have a uh, uh, your speech, <laughs> your prep yeah. speech, say, hey, listen, I have a, I have a, a spiel. Um, it I have a lot of information for you. Is it okay for me just to, to, to give all this information for you? And then we can discuss what you, what, what you just heard. And, and I can answer your questions. On, right. And I have a lot of questions for you. It's much better to be honest about that. Well, give rather... context. I mean, you're, you're sort of setting up a, a title page to say, here's why you're right. Here's what you're going to hear and why you're hearing it. Yes, exactly. So, um, but it also sort of puts them at ease because they know what's happening. It, one of the things that makes people feel comfortable in conversations is knowing what to expect. And this makes sense. If you think about when you go to a doctor, um, doctors are trained to do this, right? They, they will say, okay, I'm going to, you're going to feel a quick pinch. I'm just going to give you a quick shot. Then we'll, we'll right. put a bandaid on it. After that, we're, we need to go to take you down the hall for the x-rays. And then, you know, once we get them back, I'll come back into the room and we'll talk about them. Right. They, they walk you through the process because that tends to make people at ease and, and people who are recruiting can do the same thing. Okay, here's what here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you this spiel. I have this packet of information for you. Um, once we get through all that, that's going to take about five, maybe five minutes. I've given it a million times, but it should have lots of information for you. Then I have a lot of questions for you. I want to get to know you, and I'm happy to answer all of your questions, right? Just lay it out. Yeah, yeah. Simple, but I mean, again, it, it sort of creates that roadmap and lets them know why why they're hearing all this information and uh, that, that, yeah, so that, that's perfect. Exactly. That's great, great advice. Um, and I don't want to get away too far from the technology question before we dive into other things. So let me circle back to that and ask for coaches who are ending up communicating a lot through text messaging. I mean, coaches do it. You and I do it. Uh, every adult now, we're doing a fair amount, if not most of our communication day to day through text message, through messaging, electronically, through technology. Are there rules that are different for technology in a conversation versus face-to-face? -face? Because I think instinctively, to your point, like you're, we're all homo sapiens, we're all human. We, we have this in, intrinsic idea of what it, how we're reading communication. And then you put a screen in front of us and distance between each other and we aren't face-to-face. -face. How does the conversation technique or, or the the, that I guess the intricacies of back, back and forth communication, how has it changed through technology and what, what do we need to be aware of how to adjust what some of your tips would be, but doing it through a text message? Because a lot of communication from coaches out to prospects happens initially through technology, through, uh, through texting. So this is a really important question. Um, be, the, and partly because text messaging is never ever going to equal a phone call. Yeah. Um, there are real limitations to what text messaging uh, can do for you. So text messaging is great for simple information exchange. Um, hey, when was, what was the deadline for getting this document in? You give them the information back. Um, any other questions? Fine, in a text message. Sending documents or attachments, sending pictures, 
Again, those things are perfect for email and for text messaging. Pretty much everything else needs to be done either in person or on the phone. Um, and let me give you just one study. And there are so much, there's so much research to back this up, but just let me give you one that really demonstrates this. Um, one group of scientists, they got together a group of young uh, teenage girls and they had to do, had them do something very stressful. They had them answering math problems in front of an audience. Hmm. And the whole time they're, they are monitoring their stress levels, their heart rates, their cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone, et cetera. Now they split these girls into four groups. When they came backstage after this very stressful activity, um, one of the groups had absolutely no contact with anyone. They just walked backstage. They were by themselves. One of the groups, their mom was waiting backstage for them. Another group got a phone call from their mother and another group got a text from their mother with all of these were supportive messages. Okay. So not surprisingly, those who had nobody waiting for them backstage, their cortisol, their stress state extremely high. They were again in fight or flight mode. The ones whose mother were backstage again, not surprisingly, their stress levels fell dramatically and they were comforted. Hmm. Now here's the thing that people may not realize the people who the girls who got a text message saw almost no change in their stress levels. Wow. Emotionally, psychologically, getting a text message from their mom had no impact on them. Whereas the ones who got a phone call saw their stress levels drop almost as much as the ones whose mother was waiting backstage. Tudor University has been the standard for advanced training and education for college coaches who want to truly learn to recruit effectively. And now it's all new. The latest techniques, the newest trends, and how coaches need to change their approach with this class of recruits. For ongoing education that will help you run a better program, go to dantutor.com and click on the Tudor University button to see why coaches everywhere have trusted it for more than a decade. And now, back to the show. We simply have to be honest with ourselves and accept the fact that these digital interactions, they're simply not the same. They don't accomplish the same purpose. So if someone is emotional, someone is confused, um, if there's anything complicated at all going on, it has to be a phone call if you can't see them in person. Right, right. Um, okay, so so with that, um, I think the other problem that happens is you, um, you have, as a coach, you would have these situations where you're trying to get that athlete comfortable with talking, either in person or on the phone, whether it's, you just have some discomfort there when you have a, a teenage athlete underneath, uh, under stressful working conditions uh, in terms of making a decision on, on where to go and everything. And, um, and then you have the coach who's trying to extract that conversation. So when you have that lopsided, um, you know, one person wants to talk, very communicative, uh, communicative, and the other individual is not, they're a little shyer, um, more holding back, they don't wanna say anything wrong, or they're just nervous about talking to an adult in this situation. What can that person that's sort of leading that conversation do more effectively to try to get that, um, that, that conversation going more? So this is where your, your questions are gonna come in handy. Um, I'll give you a demonstration here. I was at the TED summit some years ago and a, a nuclear scientist came up to me. Uh, he's from Japan. 
came up to me and said, listen, I've watched your TED talk a bunch of times, but you never explain how to start a conversation. How do I start a conversation? Social media and branding are becoming more and more important to college coaches around the country. The resource more coaches are turning to than ever before? Preseason. Led by former coach Jason Schmidt, along with the insights and strategy from Dan Tudor, Preseason is helping coaches break through the clutter and reach their recruits in a way their competition just can't match. You should check it out, coach. Go to hellopreseason.com to see how they're doing it. And now, back to the show. And I said, well, um, you're, you're from Japan. Where in Japan are you from? And he said, I'm from Kyoto. And I said, well, I've only ever been to Tokyo. You know, what is Kyoto like? And he starts describing it. And I said, yeah, but do people live in houses or do they live in apartments like in, in Tokyo where they're all stacked on top of each other? And he says, no, there's houses. You've seen the pictures, blah, 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 blah. I said, yeah, but are there yards like with pets? Like just describe your street to me. Right. And he starts talking about it and talking about the restaurants there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And about five minutes in, I said, that's how you start a conversation. You're going to use your questions to ask them things they know the answer to that they care about. Right. That's it. Yeah. You, and that's how you draw someone out because you use your questions and research has shown that questions have a unique power and especially follow-up questions have a unique power to make other people feel heard, respected, and feel as though you are a likable person. Why? And that you're interested in them. You actually yes. care about them. And so it needs to be authentic. It can't just be pro forma, right? You right. can't be performative in your question asking. Right. You can't go into a conversation with a set list of questions to ask. They need to be authentic questions that come out of curiosity. Because well, if you're not about... interested in them, why are you recruiting them? Right. Well, and, and I think your point about follow-up questions is so spot on because that's in the follow-up question, it is going to have to be unique to what they just told you, which means this means you're going to have to be engaged and they will see that you're engaged. So, uh, no, that, that is fantastic. And it's so, you know, one thing that we've said to coaches for now for almost two decades, that when you're in a conversation with somebody, you're, you ask questions, that is what gets them, uh, opening up. And it's the, and frankly, they would rather you ask a question versus you tell, especially at the start of a conversation or the start of a relationship, They'd rather have questions about them than information about you because they're not interested necessarily in uh, in in you very deeply yet. Um, one of your TED talks, and again, we'll we'll um, link to this in the show notes, is on um, the uh, ten ten sort of rules for having good conversations. Uh, the and and I want you to go through all ten because I'd rather have people go and watch the TED talk. But can you talk about, since you gave that, the, the, the top two or three that people seem to grab onto the most and really resonates with, uh, with them? Um, so I think I'm actually going to start with the one that, uh, the one tip that gets the most pushback, okay. which um, nice. tends to be the one mistake that the majority of people make. And one of the tips is to um, not equate your experience with other people's. And the, the way this looks in real life is that we will offer people similar stories. They'll tell us something about themselves and we'll tell them something about ourselves that's similar to what they just said. It's the, um, I know how you feel yeah. uh, phenomenon. Um, we think that we are, what we're doing is expressing empathy. Um, 
But in almost all cases, that is not what they get. What they get is, is literally, if you imagine a movie camera, what they get is us moving the camera from them and turning it back to ourselves. Mm. Um, it's something that the sociologist Charles Derber called conversational narcissism, which is just a way to say that we are very talented right. at turning conversations back to the subject that we know the most about and that we're most comfortable with, which is ourselves. Right. Um, so we have to, you have to kind of break this habit of constantly offering up your similar experience to what they're talking about. Let their story be unique. Right. Um, let them tell you something that you don't immediately come back with. Oh, I've been through that before. Um, so that's number one of the things that's going to make them heard. The other thing I want to focus on is um, saying that you don't know when you don't know. Uh, people who are experts in their fields, the more you know about a subject, the more your learning curve either flattens out or dives. And that's because we start thinking of ourselves as an expert, right. uh, meaning we're stuck. We don't listen anymore. Someone tell, says like, gets 10 words into their sentence and we say, oh, okay, this is what they're going to ask. And in our side of our minds, we're going, yeah, 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 yeah. Let me get to what <laughs> the answer of what this is, right? But we're often wrong about that. <laughs> we often don't actually know what it is that they're about to say just based on what other people have said that was similar. Right. And so you have to break yourself out of this idea that you already know. And when you don't know something, this fear that you have by saying, I don't know, you fear that people are going to think that you're um, unprepared, you know, not, uh, not experienced. But it turns out that every time we test this, it's the opposite. The more that you admit, oh, I don't know, but I'm going to find that out, the more people's trust in you goes up, the more um, their belief in your expertise, your knowledge goes up, increases. Right. So you have to stop guessing. <laughs> we have to stop BSing your way through answers and right. just say, hey, you know what? I don't actually know that, um, but I'm going to find out. And you, you stole a little bit of my thunder for my follow-up was going to be, and you, you offered it up without me asking uh, about the mistake or the pushback that you get in that one area. Are there one or two other mistakes that you see people in regular conversations or even in professional conversations making over and over and over again that, that number one, it would be an easy maybe change if they realized they were doing it to, to fix that. Um, do you, what are, what are another one or two that, um, that, that you've seen that people make mistakes and, and, and maybe how to correct those things? Um, the first thing I would say is that the one, the, one of the biggest mistakes we make is we always assume that when conversations go, don't go well, it's because of the other person. And, and this has, this has been proven by, by research more than four out of five people say that a relationship has gone wrong because of bad communication but fewer than one in five say it was their fault. Yeah. So do that math. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't quite work, right. <laughs> which means that very often um, we are assuming that because a conversation is awkward or that they're not answering very really well, we're looking to see what it is they're doing wrong instead of asking ourselves, okay, I'm not, doing all I could be doing right now. What's going wrong here? Um, what could I be doing that's different? Um, and sometimes that requires us to just pause and really get a better sense of where they are. Yeah. Meet them where they are. Are they distracted? Are they tense? 
that may not be because of our conversation. It may be because of what has happened to them before they got there. And that's something you can respond to and start being aware of what's their state of mind? How are they behaving? Is there something I could do right now? Or is this maybe not the best time to have this conversation? Even if it was difficult to schedule, um, you are wasting your time if you're having the conversation when they are not able to be fully present. Right, right. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, the other thing that, that we hear coaches complain about or observe about themselves a lot is they will say, you know, I love to coach, I love, you know, my team, but I get so shy or nervous when I have to talk to somebody else. Or they'll say, um, I'm actually an introvert. And I thought it was interesting that uh, on your website, on your blog, um, you sort of make the case in one article that uh, you aren't, there, there aren't a lot of introverts out there. You talk about um, people that are ambiverts. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of that term. I'm sure there's some coaches that are psychology majors that are listening to this that would know immediately what an ambivert is. But can you explain an ambivert and maybe a coach listening to this would identify it? I just want to dive into that a little bit more because coaches get really nervous about communicating and some of them feel they're not good at it. And I'm thinking this might be part of the the diagnosis. Yeah. So um the the terms introvert and ambivert were invented by Carl Jung, um, a great psychotherapist and scientist. And he was they, they are meant to refer to the extreme ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um and in this case, that would be an introvert and an extrovert are the extreme introvert, extrovert, oh. right? This is there's right. a spectrum mm-hmm. of how much social interaction uh we enjoy. Um, and how much isolation we need. And the extreme ends are the extrovert and the introvert, right? The vast majority of people are in the middle somewhere, meaning the vast majority of people uh, need a little bit of both. And if required to do so, like if you have to go to a business function, a cocktail party or something, you are capable of being social and polite and courteous and friendly. Um, The vast majority of people sometimes need to be alone and just watch Netflix and be quiet and not answer the phone. And then sometimes they really enjoy being around groups of people. That's an ambivert, meaning, you know, ambidextrous. You can use both sides. Right. Right. You can do both. Those are actually... Um, emotionally and psychologically, the healthiest people. Why? Because they're adaptable. Right. For those who truly are introverts or extroverts, and again, they're rare, it's more difficult. Right. Um, and it can cause some health problems, which means they they have to sort of sometimes get a little help in order how to handle social situations. But for most of us, we are in the middle somewhere. And that's important because a lot of people now think they're introverts and are not. And we also know that if you think you are an introvert, you're more likely to avoid social situations, which means you become less practiced at social situations, which means when you are in a social situation, it's more likely to be awkward and unpleasant, which means you're more likely to avoid them, which means you're more likely to think that you're an introvert. And it becomes this vicious cycle. Right, right. It becomes that circle that you can never get out of. But you mentioned something that um, you become out of practice if you only if you're just you know if you're only sitting at home watching Netflix. So, have you found is there research uh, when it comes to these conversations that that maybe you're uncomfortable having that you can actually work your way out of that and you can be, develop the skills that would get you more towards you know being a true ambivert and um, 
and and being comfortable now with making a, a phone call to a, a prospect that you've never talked to before and doing some things maybe that um, you know getting up in front of the athletic department and and talking comfortably. So you're saying that there's that most of the time that can be just through practice. You can get good at it and 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 get that comfort level. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I always advise people um, to to start small, mm-hmm. um, meaning have short conversations with like your barista at the coffee shop or the grocery store clerk, because number one, you know they're going to be short, um, and number two, those that. They're, these are generally people who are paid to be nice to you. So it's going to be a pleasant experience. Right. Yeah. And just ask them about the weather. I mean, ask them about a pin that they're wearing, a tattoo that they have, a t-shirt that they have on. Ask them about um, anything. Um, what do you, do you love about this job? Anything at all that will get you into a 60 second exchange because um, we know that even those tiny little short interactions um, are going to give you a big mood boost. They're going to give you bursts of helpful hormones as in oxytocin and serotonin that are going to make you feel more energized, more compassionate towards others. They're going to get increased. More confident too. Absolutely. Um, they're going to make you feel uh, a stronger sense of belonging and they're a positive reinforcement so that you're more likely to do it again and again and again. So I would start quite small. You know, you don't need to call up your friend from high school and have a two hour in-depth conversation by asking them, what's the thing you most regret in life? Like this, these deep conversations, you know, we really um, don't value small talk as much as we need to. Small talk is great and it's very good for you. Yeah. Okay. So we got about five minutes or so left and I can, I I think I know what coaches are thinking that this is great information. They're going to go to your website, which we'll put in the show notes, celesteheadley.com. And I'm going to use this on my recruits. And now what they're thinking is, wow, this might help solve some of my team interpersonal communication uh, hurdles that I constantly face because these coaches are bringing together groups of young men, young women, and sometimes it's, you know, both on one team, swimming and track and field, you know, they're going to be coaching both. And this might fix um, what I see as a coach being the deficits, just with people not communicating, don't know how to communicate. And now I feel a responsibility as a coach to maybe now that I have some knowledge, um, maybe leading that conversation uh, with our team, how to be better communicators and, um, so I'm, I'm wondering, um, and of course they can get in touch with you and bring you to campus. I think that would be a great idea, but assuming that's not in their, you know, t- their, their timeline, they need something right now. When you're leading, when you're in that situation of leading a group and teaching them to be better communicators, what do you recommend? Are there situations, are there topics that are best to sort of bring up, uh, to get them talking or how do you teach, especially the younger generation, how to communicate with each other? Because again, sometimes face-to-face, they haven't had a lot of chance to do that. So here's a little bit of good uh, news here. Um, the conversational skills of the younger generations, um, most of your listeners are going to be dealing with Gen Z. Yep. Um, they are just as highly developed um, and talented as any other generation. And in right. fact, they actually have better listening skills than baby boomers do. Um, so there's a lot of things we 
don't have to teach them. Um, they already know how to do that. Here, the difference is that um, Gen Z, millennials and Gen Z are the generation that is most likely to believe that um, texting back and forth is the same as conversation. Yes. Um, and it and is they read those not. texts. I, I, what I've heard and what we've heard athletes talk about is that they read those texts and put a voice to it. And that's why sometimes adults get in trouble because they'll put all caps and, well, that means you're screaming at me um, when maybe that's not what, what got meant. So there is that whole level of communication through technology. Yeah. And you avoid that by just don't use texting for anything except information exchange. Mm. Um, do not be sucked into this delusion that texting is conversation. It's not. Um, and it's not by any measure, is it? Yeah. Uh, we know what the brain looks like when it's having a conversation. We know what it looks like when it's reading texts. Not the same. Yeah. So um, when you are trying to teach people um, how to have good conversations, the best way is just role-playing. And yeah. it's it's best, you don't have to hide, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Like you can let all this magic out and just say, hey, listen, this is how great conversation is for you. This is how much it automatically relieves anxiety and feelings of stress for you. Um, so in almost every situation, by the way, so this is an important part of teamwork. So we're going to work on this. And we know that listening skills only improve when you actually say, okay, I'm going to work on my listening skills here. I'm going to do in the exercises and here's what I learned, right? You don't improve your listening skills through osmosis. You have to work on them. Um, so you have, you can think of conversational skills, especially with these young people as going to the gym. You're not going to give one speech or talk to them about conversation one day and that's it. it. You have to keep going back and back and back to hone your skills, to get those muscles into shape. Yeah. Yeah. So important too, that the, that a coach is in the position of leading this conversation and not just hoping that it happens on the side. And because I think that's causing a lot of problems. Yeah, and be honest. The coach can say, listen, I'm working on these too. So here's the mm. particular skill I'm working on. If I interrupt you, I want you to tug my sleeve or whatever it is, because I, 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 I need your help in getting over this habit of interrupting or whatever it may be. The more that you um, acknowledge that you're a work in progress, that you're working on these things, it makes it safer for other people to do the same. Nice. So uh, you are the author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. That's by Celeste Headley. You can go to celesteheadley.com and order the book. And by the way, coaches, she also has another one um, called Do Nothing. And some of you need to read this uh, <laughs> because it's how to break away from overworking, overdoing, and underliving. And that's probably a whole separate topic that maybe we'll have Celeste back on and talk about then uh, because that's more about lifestyle and some of the, the things that coaches do to themselves, their bodies, and even, unfortunately, their families and overworking is, uh, so, uh, this book could help. So again, I, we're gonna link to all this on the website. Um, Celeste, thank you so much for lending your expertise and your voice to this conversation. Um, uh, we wanna have you back, but uh, thanks for the work on this. And um, for coaches that are listening, uh, again, go to the show notes. We have all the ways to get a hold of Celeste. Go and uh, go to her website. Uh, and encourage your college to bring her to campus. She'd be fantastic for that as well. But uh, you've been listening to the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. We thank you for listening, Coach. We'll talk to you next time. And go out and have great conversations. College Recruiting Weekly is a production of Tudor Collegiate Strategies, copyright 2022 through 2023. To contact the host, email him at dan at dantutor.com. And do us a solid, Coach. 
rate, and review our podcast right now. Plus, it wouldn't kill you to tell your fellow coaches about it, would it? So do that, too. And stay tuned for the next amazing episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast.